So I was coming back from uh, Seattle at one point. Um, I took the, the, what is it called, light rail from Seattle to SeaTac. I was coming back from the dentist. For those of you who may not know, my father-in-law is a dentist, and I don't like the dentist, and yet I like my father-in-law, which creates kind of a bit of a tension in our relationship. He actually, I think, likes drilling into my teeth. Well, my daughter, I'm just... Coming back from so Seattle to SeaTac, if you've ever driven the, uh, the light rail, it starts kind of in the belly of, of, um, of Seattle in the dark and in a tunnel, and I, I got on the light rail, and there's a part where you're heading south, and it comes like kind of up over the city, not, not over the high-rises, but you can see the um, stadiums, you can see the streets, you can see the Puget Sound, you can see the ferries, you can see the buses and the taxi cabs, and it's just like all before you, and it was just one of those moments where I was in a bit of a reflective mood, and I was just like contemplating life, and I was just watching. I was like, there's so much movement in the city, right? I'm watching taxi cabs pick people up and drive off, and I saw the garbage man picking up his garbage, and stop, and then pick up garbage and stop, pick up garbage, and I saw ferry boats going, and it's just like the city is so, so, I don't know, alive. It's just this massive complex of motion, and I just, it just struck me that, you know, people are all trying to accomplish something in the day, right? Just all this movement, people are arriving at work, picking up clients. And uh, it just prompted me to ask the question, like, what makes it all move? Like, in the world that we live in, what, 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 what motivates people to get up in the morning and do the same thing they did yesterday morning? What, what makes it all tick, you know, from a... From a a worldly perspective, not a faith perspective, but a worldly perspective. Because I don't believe for a second that you can actually live very long without motive. There has to be motive for life. Even if it's the motivation to take one more breath or one more step or to have one more dollar in your hand. There is just motive. And as I thought about it more, I, I, I came to the conclusion, and I don't know if I could make this an absolute, but it's, it's a it's a it's a. Con- conclusion that most people are driven by a deeply embedded belief that in this life we can somehow arrive. Now by arrive, I don't mean like, you know, arriving at a destination. What I mean is that that feeling of, huh, I'm here. I made it. This is awesome, right? Like I, I don't have any worries. I don't have anxieties. I have enough money in the bank. My relationships are good. My house is not broken. It's like this is good. Arrived. And I, I suspect that in every single human being, there is this deeply seated belief that somehow that can happen, um, which kind of sends us on a quest, right? And, and, and from a kind of a slightly different angle, the quest looks a little bit like this. It's if only... I had, right? Like there's, it's part of that deeply seated belief that we can arrive. Is if only I had, and then you have to fill in the blank. If only I had better looks. If only I could drop 50 pounds. If only my husband would treat me better. If only I could have a house in a better neighborhood. If only I could have a job that pays more. If only I could have a Ford instead of a Chevy. (laughs) Joke. That was a joke. There's nothing. But there is this if only, right? Don't you you think? There's just, it's, it's, 
it keeps us looking for the next thing with the idea that at some point, maybe after a whole string of if-onlys, there will be that point where you're like, ha, I'm here. I am living my best life now. Well, that kind of thinking that believes that somehow we can arrive in in this lifetime um, is something that Moses addresses in Psalm 90. Now, we've been studying the book of Exodus and Moses and, uh, you know, the, him leading the people out of Egypt. So this, this psalm actually f- kind of fits. It's a, it's a prayer, but it's also a distillation of his reflections on life and faith. Um, it's, it's, as Tom said, it's the only psalm that we know of that he wrote, and it probably is arguably the oldest of all the psalms because he is the author of the first book of the Bible. So... I want us to listen to what he has to say to us to bring kind of both a sobering perspective on life without God. And also, um, I want to hear his advice or his words to us that strengthen our faith. So three parts to this psalm. There is a confession of faith, verses 1 and 2. This is his big confession, and it's a powerful, wonderful. Um, The second part. Um, verses 3 through 12. It is a conclusion, or should I say, it are, it's his conclusions about life based upon what he knows about Scripture and his own experience. So it's, it's his conclusions about life, and I believe these are accurate conclusions. And then the last part is a petition or a prayer, um, verses 13 through 17. It's, it's like, all right, Lord, this is, this is what we need you to do. So those three parts, confession, conclusion, and petition. And I want to start with number two because I, I want to come back to number one at the end because I want to end on a positive note, okay? Um, part two, verses three through 12, is um, his conclusion about life. Now, as I said, I I believe this is an expression. What he writes here is an expression of both what he knows from Scripture that he, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote, um, and also his experience. If if you don't know anything about the life of Moses, um, he was, for the most part, he wandered with the people of Israel for a a number of years, a long time. And and one might even say that he was um, part of an unrooted people. Uh, unrooted. The opposite of that is be rooted. And, and we know what that means in terms of modern English. When we say, hey, I'm going to put down roots. Typically what that means is I'm actually going to stay in a city for a long period of time. And I'm probably going to have kids. I'm going to buy a house. Or maybe the opposite order. And, and, and invest my life in one place. That's like putting down roots, right? Because you're going to stay. There's a sense of permanency and security. To not have roots implies that you're kind of transient, you can come, you can go. Um, It's not um, a place where you are securing your foundation. That's to be unrooted. And and, um, Moses looks and sees his people, and he reflects back on the past history and realizes, you know, we are an unrooted people. That is, we are transients. And out of that, he, he, he writes... Um, or should I say, he, he, he reflects and comes to certain conclusions about what he sees. One of those conclusions, of course, is simply that, that we are, are transient. We, we, there is no such thing as permanency in terms of human life. Um, again, this is probably, verse 3 is probably a reflection of Genesis 3. After mankind fell, God said, you know, 
From the dust you came to the dust you will go back. And here, reflecting on God's word, he says, you return man to the dust. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. As he looks around and realizes that, that um, life just doesn't last because everybody dies. He watched an entire generation of people die in the wilderness. And I should back up and also say, this it's bigger than just him. Like, he looked back at, at Abraham, you know, the friend of God, and what was he? He never had land of his own. He never had a, a foundation stones upon which to build a house. He was a camper. He was a nomad. He just wandered from place to place. He was homeless, and so was Isaac, and so was Jacob, and the people of Israel living in Egypt. I mean, they were foreigners, strangers. They were slaves. That, that wasn't their home, and and. By the time he writes this, I suspect that he had been wandering for some time in the wilderness. Maybe he had a a very optimistic um, view of, God's taken me to the promised land, so therefore I'm going to arrive someday in my lifetime, which, if you know the story of Moses, he never did arrive. He only saw the promised land from a distance. And even the people that did go into the promised land were later later uprooted, which gives the sense of of just transience. Um, now, we know that intellectually. I mean, you can go to the, you can go to the graveyard and, and, and intellectualize about the fact that someday you're going to have a headstone or you're going to be cremated and you're going to be, you know, ashes are going to be scattered over the sea over a piece of land that you like. Um, but to really come to grips with that conclusion about life really alters one's perspective on your possessions, on the way you see others, on where you spend your time, that life is is transient, and, and you cannot take any of it with you. And you, again, know this intellectually. I was struck um, as, a, as a young person. I was taken um, by my mom into San Francisco to see the King Tut exhibit. I think it was early 80s or probably actually the 70s. Um, and um, I, I still remember the trip. I had my, my, my favorite crackers or chicken and a biscuit. They're horrible for you. Right, but man, those things are awesome. That's one of the best memories of that trip. But here I was, you know, you have your headphones on and you're going from station to station, and they're telling you about the Egyptian people, ancient Egyptian people, and you know, and one of the things that the Egyptians believed was that you could take it all with you, which is why he was buried with so much gold. Um, he was buried with with some some of the pharaohs buried with servants. Right, that's a sucky job. To be married, uh, buried, with, be the servant. Um, well, here I am. I'm just a young guy, probably sixth, fifth, sixth grade, and I'm, I'm looking at all this, and I'm realizing he thought he could take it all with him, but it's all here in San Francisco, which means that was a serious miscalculation. <laughs> like this is a mission fail moment because here I am. I'm, I'm looking at it, and but there's his mummy. <laughs> It's just, it's, somehow, I, I think we, we believe that what we, what, we, what we take in this life, we get to keep. You know, my grandmother was the opposite of that. As she seasoned in her faith, the older she got, she realized she couldn't keep it with her. She started giving it all away because she knew it doesn't matter. Life is, that's one of the things, life, this life, life is transient. We're going to be here tomorrow. Maybe not. But I guarantee you, in about 50, 60 years, no one here will be alive. Unless you're a baby over here. There's some babies that will hopefully still be alive. That's not a negative thing. Now, you might think, well, that's, gosh, 
came in here optimistic and now you're depressing me, Pastor Dan. Listen, it's spiritually healthy to actually come to grips with that. It's a spiritually healthy thing because the opposite means that you'll invest way too much and you'll try and root yourself in this life in ways that are idolatrous. Even our time spent here, he characterizes, and this is his second conclusion about life, is that even the time we have is toilsome. That's a sense of, there's just a sense of burden, a sense of pain, a sense of mourning, and a sense of sadness with life. Now, are there joys? Absolutely. But you know, I I had a mentor once tell me, and maybe I've shared this before, maybe I haven't, but he told me, he says, you know what, if you were to ask any, not any, most young Christians, what are your favorite books of the Bible? They would probably say, it's Proverbs and James, because they're so optimistic about how well they're going to live the Christian life. You ask a person who, let's say, is six decades or older and have seen 60-plus years of life, what are your favorite parts of the Bible? By and large, I think most would probably say the Psalms because they've experienced enough loss, enough pain, enough sadness and grief that the Psalms speak to. Which underscores the simple point that like the longer you live, the more you realize that this is in fact the truth. Life is fast. It's transient. You can't keep it. And at the end of the day, it is a, it is a hard thing. Why is this? We might ask the question, why, why, did, why did God make it this way? Like, why is everything so... Why can't we stay here? Why can't we keep our stuff? Why can't we maintain relationships with people we love? Why do they have to die? And that, Moses gets to the very core of it, which is at the very core of the Bible, the core of all problems. And that is this. And this is all the way through the scripture. Ultimately, the the fundamental core root problem of which everything else is symptomatic is there has been a fracture between humanity and God. And humanity as we know it, as we know it, is currently under judgment or wrath or anger. There is hostility. As he, he brings us right to it, he says, for, like this is the reason why things are transient and this is why things are hard. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We, we talk about a lot, this a lot in the church, but I don't know that it really registers in terms of worldview. That is, we, the world around us is searching for answers to problems, right? They want to find out what, what is the real reason behind some kid going into a school and killing a bunch of children? Like, how could this ever happen? It's a problem with guns. Is it a problem with bad parenting? Is it a problem with the educational system? Is it a problem of liberal politics or too conservative politics? And the world looks for all of the root causes, but any other answer than this one never gets at the heart of it. The fundamental issue with our world, which is why it's so broken and why such horrible things happen in it, comes down to the simple fact that we as human beings are sinners 
and the world in which we live is under judgment. That's simple truth. That is the simple truth, and we must always remember that is the issue. Everything else is symptomatic. That is the core issue. It is a God-human problem. Of course, our our culture can't go to that answer because that acknowledges God exists. And not only does it acknowledge God exists, but it also acknowledges that we are fundamentally fallen people. And we don't like to face that. But that's the truth. And that's what Moses says. This is, this is the problem. This is the, my conclusions about life. It goes fast. It's transient. Um, it's hard because at the end of the day, We've sinned against God. And he's seeing it with his own eyes. He, you know, if you read Exodus, you realize, man, the people do well, and then they sin. And sometimes people die. And then they do well, and then they sin, and they die. And he's seeing it right before him. Like, this is real. This is real life. These are my conclusions. As I said, to know these and to embrace these as part of your understanding of life is, is, the, is the key to wisdom or is the beginning of wisdom. To not acknowledge this, embrace this, is to live in la-la land. It is to live in a fantasy of your own making. This is reality. Can you imagine? Not about this first service. Titanic just hit uh, iceberg. And uh, starting to go down, bulkhead by bulkhead. And there's some guy in a room deciding he's going to redecorate and remodel. Hmm, I wonder what color the walls should be. Carpet. This carpet's really nasty. We're going to put down new carpet. We're going to get it from the captain's quarters. He already left his, and he has a table. Can you imagine a person who is on a sinking ship, trying to redecorate. It's like, listen, at the end of the day, one of the most spiritually healthy things we can do is acknowledge that the ship is going down. And it's not because of God, it's because of us. We put ourselves in opposition to him. Instead of this, though, that he prays, right? This is his expression of prayer, or of faith. And actually, it's an expression of hope. Um, he petitions God for grace to do something about this. Like, this is an accurate analysis of the world. The accurate analysis of the world in which the Israelite people were living. And this is his petition. And I want you to just notice the, or note the underlying parts, and I'm just going to reference them, and this is just going to take a moment. He prays. He cries out based upon what he sees. He says, return, O Lord, or O Yahweh, how long? Like, how long is this going to go on? How long is this constant repetition of life and death and pain going to go on? Have pity, or another way of saying that is have mercy on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love or your chesed, one of the most important words in all of the Old Testament. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, what I want you to notice is he prays for a complete reversal of his conclusions. Instead of wrath, give us pity or mercy. Instead of anger, give us your steadfast love and satisfy us with it. 
Instead of us feeling the burden and the sadness of toil, make us glad and make us rejoice. In the very end, he says, establish the work of our hands. Twice he says, establish the work of our hands. That's a way of saying, make what we do permanent. Stop the transience and let it last. So see, he's praying for a complete reversal of his conclusions. God, do something about this. Now that suggests two things. No. That necessitates two things. One, it means that Moses recognizes, and he's absolutely 100% infallibly right when, in the simple fact that in praying this way, he recognizes this is not something humans can do. We cannot put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We cannot reverse the effects of transience, hardship, God's wrath, or anger. We cannot do it. It is outside the scope of our power or our capability. As much as we may try to overcome his conclusions through Botox or collagen or working out or drinking shakes or running, doing elliptical, politicking, trying to save planet Earth, a lot of those things have their place. But at the end of the day, we can't fix what's broken because it's a God-man problem. So he's praying for it. Lord, you have to be gracious. This is something you have to do. And the other side of prayer is the belief that God will actually do it. You don't really learn how to pray until you feel helplessly desperate, like you know you can't do it. But also the flip side of that is to actually believe that God is and capable and will do what he's promised to do. And he promised to bring them to the promised land. He promised that someday they would arrive, and so he's praying for it. That, by the way, is a bit of a side application. If there's no prayer, it's because you don't feel helplessly desperate. And at the flip side, you don't really believe God is there, listens to you, and will answer. But where we feel helplessly desperate, like, there's nothing I can do, but I know you promise and I'm praying, that's where prayer comes from. So here's conclusions. And he's prayed, God, please reverse the whole cycle, reverse the process. Now I want to flip back to, I said, the first part. We've looked at his conclusions about life, sobering. We've seen his petition for God to reverse. Now let's flip back to the very first part, which is confession of faith. And in my own wrestling with this um, psalm, this is some of the most wonderful part. This is what he says he knows to be true. Despite the conclusions about life and his prayers, he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting, that is from timeless past to timeless future, you are God. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Abraham was a wanderer, camper. Where was home for him? God. Isaac, he was a camper, a wanderer, had no place to call home. Who was his home? God was. Jacob, who was his home? God was. Whose home 
in the wanderings in the wilderness. Well, God is. That's what it means when it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. That's, part, that's just a remarkable truth. It, I mean, the one place where our home should be is not in a where, but actually in a who. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. And who's the who? He's the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, the one who is constant, the one who um, is unchanging, the one place where things never change is him. So you have been our dwelling place, and that is such an encouragement. God, you are home. You, you are the one constant that in this lost, chaotic, changing world of gains and losses, you're the one constant. So I have to bank and invest in the simple fact that you are my home. Or as Jesus taught us, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here where moth and rust corrupt, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where God himself is our home and makes it secure. If any of you watched the, um, the crazy series, it's old now. Well, depending on how old you are. Lost? You crazies out there watch that? I got sucked into it, man. I had to go back and watch all the episodes, and the first, like, four seasons were pretty awesome, mysterious, engaging. And then it kind of, like, got crazy and confusing and kind of ended in a pile of ashes, in my opinion. But I was sucked in, and I had to watch the very last episode. But there is this episode in season four that is worth maybe not watching the whole series, just that one. And uh, it's, 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 there's this character by the name of Desmond. And he starts to slide in and out of different um, dimensions of time in his life, like backward and forward and sideways and so forth. And the side effect of his, his going in and out of different time places in his life is that he starts to forget who he was. He starts to recognize people around him. That is, he starts to lose himself as he's lost in timelessness. But there is this one thing like, that, that enables him to come back to reality. That one thing, that constant, and that's the name of the episode, the constant. And man, I was just like, man, this is, this is good preaching stuff right here. This is awesome. It's like um, he had this picture of the love of his life. Her name was Penny. And in all of his alternate realities and different times where he was backward and forward, she was the one constant in his life. The picture, seeing her, picking up the phone and talking to her. And at the end of the show, the only thing that saves him, the only thing that enables him to recover his, his memories and the sense of self and who he was is that he had a constant in his lost, chaotic world. And I thought, man... There's no human being that can be a constant other than Jesus Christ. But God can and must be the constant for his people. The one thing that you can count on, the one you can look to, the one that you can remember, the one that you can come to church and go, oh yeah, that's, that's the constant of my life. That's my home. That's the one who gave his life for me. That's, that's my constant is God. All of us need that. And if it's not God, it's something else that you try to make constant, and nothing else is capable of being constant except God, which is why he's worthy of faith. He is, he is to be your home, church. Listen, the world we live in is up. It's just waves and wind and storms, and you have to maintain God as your constant in life. And let me close with this. 
This prayer, the whole thing of Moses, God did answer it. You know, it's the conclusions about life, transience, death, anger, wrath, toil, and his petition, God reverse it all. God did answer that. But it took 15 centuries for him to answer that prayer. It just tells you, like, the way we think of prayer and the way God thinks of prayer is very different. Fifteen centuries after this prayer, long after Moses was in the dust, um, and this is kind of just a remarkable thought, Moses got to see with his own eyes the answer to his prayer. The Gospel of Luke records this event. Don't read what's up there yet. Now you're reading it, I know. So you guys are all sinners. You tell you not to do something, you want to do it, right? That's just what it is. So just stop, all right? It's like there's this moment where Jesus in his earthly ministry allows his disciples to see who he really is. It's called the transfiguration. Like the, his, the veil of weakness, not veil of sin. Jesus is not a sinner, but he was born in weakness, which is why he could die and bleed. He, he pulled back the veil of his weakness and his glory sh- sh- shined. And, and two people show up in this moment of transfiguration. And here's the text of the Gospel of Luke. It says, And as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Just because Moses died didn't mean he didn't live. But he shows up in this amazing moment, and look what they talk about. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. Moses and Jesus, after 15 centuries, are having a conversation, looking at the glory of who Christ is, and they're talking about his death. And you think about who Jesus is. He is the answer to Moses' prayer. He is the reversal. I mean... He gives his life on the cross, which is what they were talking about. What happens? He absorbs in his own life the wrath and the anger of God, offering to us the mercy and the steadfast love of our Father. Not only does he deal, deal with, with, with the whole wrath and anger against sin, but he rises again to give us life, eternal life, to overcome death so that this cycle of life, death, life, death, life, death comes to an end. And then, and this is kind of branching out, also equally as awesome is the realization that, that in Christ, like those of us who have come to faith in him, that, that he is the end of God's anger, he's the end of wrath, he is the key to life. And when we believe that and we live in such a way that we honor him and we live for him and we speak of him, that God actually establishes In some mysterious way that I can't fully understand, he establishes the work of our hands. In other words, what we do in this life to and for him lasts forever. That's why Paul said in a number of points, it's like even if you're a servant, if you're serving as unto the Lord, you will be rewarded. Your labor is not in vain. In other words, it matters. That's an encouragement not just to keep God as your constant and recognize that in Christ he has reversed this whole horrible conclusion about the world. 
but also that in Christ our work here matters as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the takeaway, listen, if, if you're wrapped, this is a idiom that some people don't understand. If you're wrapped around the axle over what's next or where you live or what you don't have, you got to get your head out of this world and you have to recognize that it's going away anyway. And place your, your heart and your head and your faith and your constant who is God and recognize that in Christ Jesus, he's the only one that actually can make your work here endure. And that should be an encouragement uh, to us as, 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 as people who live in a very affluent culture who easily just find ourselves rooting ourselves here rather than recognizing, hey, man, this is not our home, at least not yet. And I'm, I'm living for something different. So I, I pray that that is, a, that is your walk. I pray that if that's not, this will be a challenge to you that, you know what, I need to be living for the right things. Father, thank you for your word. I just pray for everyone in this room, different places, different locations of life, and um, some with very, very big things facing them. And I just pray maybe this is an encouragement to get your eyes up and recognize that the only thing that truly is constant and enduring is you, and that we would cling to you, love you, live for you, knowing that you have reversed it all. And uh, ahead of us is our promised land, our, our new creation life. And we look forward to that day in Christ's name. Amen.